0: You are listening to audio from the decidedly podcast for more information find us on instagram at decidedly podcast
1: so you remember when we went to peru together of course like i don't know 12 years yep. ago um you were really into paragliding at the yes, time yes i was you were like, you were so into it. And you said, hey, Singer, we're going to go to Peru. And and you can kind of choose all the activities. And you can just, you know, you can make the trip however you want it. We'll do whatever you want. And then I kind of get the agenda. And I noticed paragliding is on there. I, was yeah, like, it, I did not yeah, You, can, you can
0: do whatever you want to do as long as it's paragliding. We did that three separate places in Peru. <laughs> in Peru.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of paragliding. Um, it was great. Yeah, it, was. it was great. One of the highlights and also um most terrifying moments was when we when we went paragliding solo and that for some reason was the first of the three paragliding events <laughs> so i get there and i've never paraglided ever not once and you're like an expert yeah and the guides take us they get us in this um you know pack us into a little car in lima we drive outside the city and we go to this big cliff which you know, in my memory is probably much larger than it is in reality. Well, I,
0: I will admit, but we get there, I will admit at this point that the amount of training you got was, was probably less than it should have been.
1: <laughs> it was nothing. You know what happened is we went there, we hike up to the top of this uh, cliff and they laid out the, the glider on the ground and they just gave me verbal instructions yeah. They're like, oh, well, you know, the right handle will make you go right. The left handle will make you go left. Uh, if you pull both handles at the same time, uh, those are your brakes. Um, but when you come in, like when you come in for a landing, you're going to uh, you're going to keep this in mind. You don't pull the brakes too hard. And I go, wait, what do you mean don't pull the brakes too hard? I mean, like, I want to I stop. And he goes, yeah, I mean, if you pull them too hard, you're going to have a bad time. And if you wait too late, it's going to be even worse. And I'm like, you know, my eyes are like the size of half dollars. I'm like, what are you talking about, Jorge? Um, don't pull the brakes. Don't, what do you mean? Don't pull the brakes. And he goes, Hey dude, look like I've been here a hundred times. I've, I've jumped off this cliff a hundred times. I've helped people just like you do it a hundred times. I checked all the equipment for you. You're going to be fine. And I realized I had no like choice really. Um, I was uh, yeah, out there, We're out you know, it, in yeah. a different continent, you know, you are um, certainly emotionally invested in this activity. We've driven like three hours to get here and Jorge, you know, he tells me that I'm basically a wussy if I don't do it. So I, I figure I have to do it. Well, I strap everything up and I'm like ready to go and, I run right off this cliff. The stupidest thing I've ever done just straight off this cliff. And this glider just lifts me up and I'm flying all of a sudden I'm flying through the air. And it was amazing. It was so cool. I could see the countryside. It was so beautiful. I could see Jorge's little car down by the side of the road somewhere. It looked like it came out of a Hot Wheel set. And I felt so free. Yeah. And as I was flying like the only thing I could think of was how badass it was but also like how thankful I was that I just took that leap of faith that it was going to be okay. When I get close to the ground finally I remember what Jorge said, don't pull the brakes. And I just kind of squeezed very slowly and I, I really wanted to just go ah yeah, and pull because tempting. it was, you know, it's coming in that's your hot, natural reaction. But I didn't. Yeah, so your natural reaction is go, "Oh crap." Um, but I didn't do that. And I landed on both my feet and the glider just slowly fell behind me. And I, I learned later that Jorge said, Oh, you land on your feet. You landed on your feet. And I was like, well, yeah. I mean like, what? why, are, why is that worth celebrating? He goes, nobody ever lands on their feet first time. They go, what? <laughs> you let me do that. And the, and, and success looks like me <laughs> not busting my success ass. Success not
0: crashing. <laughs>
1: Success was crashing. Success was crashing, just not that bad. Oh, Success was hitting the ground and stumbling and falling and bumping your head. But me landing on my feet was like, oh, magical. Um, but I, I, I love that moment because I learned that in order to really enjoy the precious moments in life, you, you often have to take a leap of faith. And you have to take a leap of faith that it's going to be all right, that you're going to land on your own two feet. But it makes it so much easier if you have someone by your side who's been there a hundred times who who knows what the heck they're doing. Um, I thought of that story because our guest today is a badass pilot and a avid paraglider herself. Colonel Martha McSally, former U.S. Senator, is the first woman in U.S. history to fo- fly a fighter jet in combat and command a fighter squadron in combat. She took on the Pentagon in an eight-year battle to overturn discriminatory policies towards servicemen and women deployed to Saudi Arabia, and she won. Uh, She served four years in the U.S. House of Representatives and two years as a U.S. Senator. She's got a master's in public policy from Harvard University's JFK School of Government a master's in strategic studies from the Air War College where she graduated number one in her class out of 261 senior military officers. And she was a distinguished graduate from the U.S. Air Force Academy. We had a fantastic conversation with Martha today. Uh, she's a very genuine down-to-earth person and has some incredible stories and absolutely powerful decision-making frameworks and tips. I know you're gonna learn something from this episode. My name is Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Martha, that wall behind you looks exactly what I would think a fighter pilot's house would look like.
2: Well, and I also brought my pain.
1: Oh, man.
2: I, my <laughs> I have all sorts of props here. Holy crap! Look at the size. That of
1: bullet. bullet was wider than my computer so screen. there's a
2: smart water bottle, a liter smart water bottle for reference. That
0: bullet. That bullet is the size of a water bottle.
2: You don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Oops. No. Yeah.
1: No. I. No. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by, you know, in Fort Worth, we've got a lot of military industrial, you know, plants. we got Lockheed Martin, uh, Bell. So everybody here knows like 20 people that work at one of those places. I'll be hanging out with my friends who are engineers on these planes and they start talking about it. I'm like, man, I don't understand this at all.
2: Yeah, well the folklore is that they built a big gun in the A10 and they went to the engineers and said figure out how to fly this gun. <laughs> so that's the folklore. I don't know if that's true, but that's the story we stick
0: to. <laughs> it sounds it sounds yeah, exactly. good. I mean that sounds right. <laughs> that's believable. That's now you so you flew the A10, I did. is that right?
2: Yep, the A10 Warhawk, Yep. for those who don't know what it is it's this beautiful plane it's got 11 weapon stations on it but it's really as we talked about this gun it was you know the guns basically almost you know the size of a car um you sit on top of it and if there's one seat in the plane and there's no two-seat trainers and there's no when i went through training there were no simulators so your first flight was solo Wow. Having never flown the plane before. And yeah, it was built to um it was built to support our troops on the front line in um what's called close air support. It was actually built to go against Soviet tanks uh on the front line, often when um you know there there's close proximity, they're on the move, and you really needed a plane that could go low and slow and uh survive a direct hit uh, and deliver firepower to uh, you know protect and save American lives. Amazing plane.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that's got to take some nerve to to fly a plane that's designed to get hit.
2: Yeah, it's uh, yeah we're a special breed. A ten pilots. I chose yeah. the A ten. Sounds
0: like such a bad special idea. Special
2: in a crazy way, right? <laughs> yeah, I chose the A ten. I had the choice of any fighter aircraft, and uh, this was finally when they, uh, you know, changed the law, so it was no longer against the law for women to be fighter pilots, and then changed the policy. But I had the choice of any fighter, and I picked the A ten. And uh, it's just, there's just nothing like its mission. You know, we're, we've adapted from that initial kind of Soviet, you know, mission, which has come full circle as far as needed capabilities in that part of the world. But um, in the, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we're often, I would take off in Afghanistan when I was a squadron commander, our uh, planes were 24 seven providing cover for troops on the ground. And we would often be on one mission, but we would have troops in contact, uh, under fire, uh, you know, having gotten ambushed and in, in what they call danger close and they just needed our help. So we, we took off with maps of the entire country of Afghanistan. And we were often told a uh, radio frequency, a grid coordinate and a call sign and just go help these guys. And our job was to figure out like, where's the good guys, where's the bad guys. Often, um, the risk of hurting the friendlies is high in these situations. Cause you're, you know, you're, From above trying to figure out when they're often in a close firefight, where's the target and friendly fire is a a real risk. So you really have to be precise. You have to hold your cool. You have to make good decisions in the midst of all this, Uh, you know, good decision making to an extreme. But yeah, I mean, it it was built to, to basically lose all its hydraulics, all its electrics. One engine have major flight control damage and still be able to fly uh, back to friendly territory safely. It's a it's an incredible plane. It's really it's a badass plane. Can I say that on your podcast?
0: Uh. Yeah, it's a, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, we, we
1: so, got the I, explicit right, I, filter a while back.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> all right. So I have a question for you on that. So back in the heyday of the Cowboys, there was a uh, player, Chad Hennings, who flew the a 2 yeah.
2: I know Chad. Now, so a,
0: did you did you go to school with Chad? He and I
2: were in the same graduating class at the Air Force Academy. Yeah,
0: 1988. Is that right? okay? Yep. Very cool. Yep. Very cool. So how did now he is what six six He's six seven big, something and like that? I'm
2: quite little. We're yeah. on the, uh okay. So yeah.
0: th- that's my question. How do you how do you decide on the same plane? There's such a physical difference there. <laughs> how do you end up picking the same? Well, the, same, so the
2: planes were designed for you know kind of the median size of the average, honestly, men, you know, when they were built. And so there is a limitation. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to be this tall to ride this ride, right? There is a limitation on both ends of the spectrum. So when you're too short, which I actually had to fight for a waiver, uh, an exception to be able to get in because I was just a little bit too short. My sitting height was okay, but my total height was a little short. So, uh, I had to show that my leg length and my leg strength would overcome uh, you know, my leg strength would overcome any small, slight, uh, shortage in my leg length, but we had to go through a whole rigmarole in order to, uh, get my pilot, uh, clearance because of this. and it's, look, it's legit. You have to be able to, you know, see over the dashboard for lack of a better analogy. You have to be able to, in the case with the legs, for, sh- for those who are short, you have to be able to go full brakes, which you use your, you use your, um. Your feet for the brakes, like your if if these are my feet, right? You use this for your rudder while you're on the ground steering, and then you're using Mm. your feet moving forward, you know, your calf muscles for brakes. If you're in a spin out of control, you need to be able to jam in full rudder all the way in order to help get out of the spin. So there, it's like legit for those who are tall, too tall, or near too tall, like Chad, who needed a waiver uh, because of that. There's a there's a risk, like they can't close the canopy because you're you know you're you're just too tall and so if you if your spine has a little bit of a bend in it that's just not gonna work over a long period of time and then especially if you have to eject you're now going at you know the force of 20 plus times the for, uh, force of gravity yeah you're with gonna a rocket you're motor gonna hit under something on the way up, and it's gonna break your back if it's not perfectly aligned straight same thing if your legs are too long like you can they'll break their legs on the way out so they they have limitations the bottom line is it's usually 5-4-ish four, to 6-4-ish, you know, with some um, uh, opportunity for waivers based on each individual is different, whether they can fit in the cockpit and they can function in the cockpit safely.
0: So how, so I understand why you might pick the A-10. You know, it sounds like a badass plane, so that good for you. <laughs> it sounds like the opposite type of plane I would want <laughs> to fly, but, the, but that's why you do what you do and I do what I do. So yeah, that's we, why we we, were, uh,
1: we never got that uh, opportunity.
0: Never, never had that opportunity.
1: <laughs> we weren't asked what plane uh, we wanted to don't fly. Don't want that.
2: Okay.
0: <laughs> I had a uh, yeah, I had a girlfriend in college whose dad was a pilot like that, and uh, took me flying around and nice. made me sick on purpose. I'm I'm quite sure. Uh, <laughs> so so when you're struggling to get waivers yeah. based on physical attributes, and, and and there are some limitations where you really wouldn't want to waiver yeah. beyond right. Yeah. Were you concerned that there was this barrier because of stature or did you think, oh, you know, this is because I'm, I'm a woman or were were there other sort of institutional barriers you had to get through to be able to be a combat pilot? Oh, for sure. So when
2: I went off to the Air Force Academy, there were, were institutional barriers, but I didn't think the height limit, you know, necessarily, I didn't focus on it. Like it was a, female, male thing. I mean, you could be frustrated by that, but they built aircraft long before I was there trying to get my pilot training. So you want to, you want to rail against the things you can change, which if we're talking about good decision-making, you know, focus on the things you can change, not the things you can't change. Yeah. I can't change how the planes were built, but I can only change the path I take in order to try and have an opportunity to fly them. Uh, but when I when I entered the Air Force Academy, I wanted to be a doctor. I was motion sick when I was a kid, and I had no desire to be a pilot. And I found out for the first time in my life that I couldn't be something just because I was a woman. It was against the law at the time for women to be fighter pilots. And I just I couldn't believe it. I, grew, I was blessed. I grew up in a family where I was told I could be anything I wanted to be. And I have a little bit of a change agent, entrepreneurial slash rebellious spirit in me, which you'll discover over the course of the hour. And so I channeled that in a way where I was like, what do you mean I can't do that just because I'm a girl? And it just pissed me off. And I just decided, you know what? Well, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna become a fighter pilot. I'm gonna be the first woman fighter pilot. And people laughed at me. They were like, you know, it's against the law, Martha. And my response was, we live in America, laws change. So I'm not gonna let my dream die. Uh, I wouldn't have said it like this at the time, but the the, the kind of the approach I took was keep the dream of my heart, don't have a chip on my shoulder, bloom where I'm planted, keep excelling, keep looking for opportunities that maybe the, you know, the door was going to blow open, persevere, keep growing in your skills and, and things that you would need in order to be a good pilot. And, you know, the door finally opened. It was nearly 10 years later. I had nothing to do with the change. But I had the right, you know, at that point, grit and attitude and qualifications and timing, which is often really important in life, uh, that when the door opened, I was ready. And I was ready here, you know, too, where I was like dreaming and persevering towards it. So, yeah, there were severe barriers. I didn't, in that case, have anything to do with the change, but I had to do with, you know, I was, my part was to be postured and ready when the change happened to say, you know, send me, I'll go through first.
0: Did you have a sense that that change was happening? Was that fairly well broadcast? Uh,
2: So, you know, my years at the Air Force Academy, no. Like it was so far from anybody's thinking that it would ever change. They then sent me to Harvard for grad school for two years and honestly, when first if you think about good and bad decision making, sometimes we make good decisions for the wrong reasons, right? So, <laughs> so I'm trying to like I'm trying to get my waiver for my height, and then I my hand was broken, so even when I got it for my height, my hand I lost it for my hand. It's a Very long story. I talk about this in my book Dare <laughs> to Fly, but it was talking about persevering. And my window was closing. I had withdrawn from other, you know, from medical school process and. I was running out of options. I just was singularly focused on pilot training. And I finally applied for a scholarship. The, the one-star general was like, Martha, like you need to wake up. like You got to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. Apply for scholarships. Your grades are great. You know These are great opportunities. And I was like, I don't want to go to 17th grade. I'm tired of school. I want to go fly. And so I finally applied to the Rhodes Scholarship. I mean, I can admit this now. With the main focus of like, I'm trying to buy time to get into pilotry. <laughs> so,
0: so, it's just something to do, right? Yeah.
2: So I end up, you know, I get there, I make the regional finals of the roads and then they give me this scholarship to Harvard. So I go off to Harvard, but again, I'm so, uh, I mean, I laugh at it now. Like, okay, I'm here to study what, you know, because my mindset was I'm here to buy time, you know, for getting into pilotry. So I had this great experience. Yeah, it was amazing. Then I went to pilot training, and when I was in pilot training, Desert Storm happened, and then Congress repealed the law while I was in pilot training. So I thought, I'm going to be able to pick a fighter. And then the Pentagon said, just because it the, the law changed, we still are not changing the policy. And I was like, ah. So I I thought for sure it was still going to well, change. Well, what does suit. that mean? Like Just because there was no longer of the law, is they that? can still say that they don't want to do it. It's not their policy. So – whatever you know we had this
0: oh
1: so they changed the law but not the policy Oh, okay
0: so the law changed saying saying that the air force could allow it but
2: the military okay air force army navy marines they just refused to open it up but i just had a sense like it's going to change soon and so that decision i made a critical decision at that moment okay i was graduating near the top of my class i had a lot of great assignments i could have chosen from Uh, that would be flying cargo planes or tanker planes. But once I went to fly in one of those other major weapon systems, they were never going to cross me over to fighters. And so I decided to be a T-37 instructor pilot in Del Rio, Texas, because I felt like it was going to still give me an opportunity to transition to fighters after that assignment was over and it was buying me more time, just like grad school was buying me more time for the change to happen. So I picked this assignment, which most people were shocked. They were like, why would somebody graduating so high in their class, pick a T37 to Del Rio, Texas? Like it just was, but I was keeping, you know, and it wasn't an easy decision, by the way, not, not an easy decision. I have, we don't have time to tell the whole story, It was made in the moment, which I would not advise, but my gut told me, keep the dream alive, pick this, keep keep building your expertise as a pilot, it's going to change soon. And it paid off. A couple years later, I got a phone call from a general at the Pentagon saying, we're about to change the policy. We looked back to um, all the women who graduated since the law was changed, who earned a fighter, but we simply couldn't pick one because we had ovaries. And we're not flying another major weapon system. And it's come down to seven of you. Are you still interested in being a fighter pilot? And I was like, hell yes, of course I am. So it it all, all those decisions to buy myself time to keep the dream alive paid off.
1: Obviously the institutional barrier there um, and the the legal barrier. What about the social barrier? The other men in the Air Force, what was their response knowing that you were seeking this Great path? Great
2: question, Sanger. Well, you know, during the debate in Congress over whether we should allow women to fly fighters, our four-star general in charge of the entire Air Force, like he is our leader, testified before Congress that he would rather pick a less qualified man than a more qualified woman for these cockpits. He was against it. And There's a crazy... What did he say is the uh, reason for that? There was just a lot of people... I've done a lot of research on this, and I've lived it. Um, In our history, women have served since the Revolutionary War in varying capacities, and we, as a country, always uh, struggled with whether women should be in certain roles or could be in certain roles. Like, it kind of comes down to those two arguments. So for some people, it was a, you know socially, I don't know, what, what's acceptable cultural norms, you know, of, of what men and women should be doing. Um, and other people were making arguments that like, women, you wouldn't believe the arguments they made before Congress with a straight face, you know, women don't have the, you know, physical strength to pull G's and to, you know, endure through these missions, women don't have the you know, decision making or judgment or emotional capacity to do. I mean, the whole thing like with a straight face are everyone who is making these arguments, like women don't belong doing this or we don't want women doing this. So we had to, we had to deal with that. There's a great picture I'll send to you guys later of the press conference when they announced that they were opening fighters to women and they brought three of us of the 7 who were initially cho- you know chosen in the air force to a press conference to be like a dog and pony show parading us around like we're making the change that same four star general was leading that press conference so when the secretary of defense <laughs> oh. said this is going to change. I'm changing the policy. He had to decide whether he was going to resign or whether he was going to act like he agreed with it. But we all couldn't stand this guy. He was a jerk, you know. And so they get they put us through all this media training about our body language. But I was this feisty, young whippersnapper, you know, pilot who... Uh, I mean, I knew exactly what I was doing, but in that press conference, I'm sitting there with my arms folded, giving him side eyes, like you know, on purpose. <laughs> live in the press conference. There's
1: a hilarious. <laughs> picture that, Screw the training. Yeah, Screw the PR there is a, training. Yeah, there was a yeah.
2: hilarious picture that ended up like front page, one of the major newspapers, with that in picture. there. And it's, but I'll send you the picture later. But you can, you can, you don't have but to yeah, guess what was that. going through my mind. So uh, the point is, <laughs> leadership uh, sets the culture at the top. Right. And so you you did then have a number of people down the chain of command who uh, I feel like felt like they had license to create barriers or a hostile environment or, you know, denigrate us or try to figure out how to how to make us feel so miserable that we quit. Um, And so it was not easy. I mean, those early days when I transitioned, I'm not complaining about it, but it was not easy. Uh, It. It, you're breaking into, uh, you know, a tough environment that was all, you know, if you ever watched Top Gun, you know what I'm talking about, right? Male, male only. And, yeah. and I think, you know, there was, there are a number of good people. A lot of them probably had daughters. This is just my guess. You know, I as I, in my experiences where they're like, well, I don't want anyone to tell my daughter she can't do something. But a lot of them just stayed silent. And the people who were the most insecure and, jerks um, often, you know, created a a pretty difficult environment. It was extremely isolating. I mean, there was, I remember in that first part of training, I was getting up every morning, getting on my knees, like, God, give me the strength to get through the day, despite how I feel I'm being, you know, treated or or not accepted. Uh, Just put one foot in front of the other one flight at a time, do my best and prove them wrong one person at a time. But it, you know, certainly wasn't easy, but um, there were also some, Good people, but a lot of them stayed. You know, there are a lot of good people, but a lot of them stayed silent. There's a lot of sheep uh, when you get into those kind of high pressure environments, where the sheep just go along, you know, with the culture. So,
1: well, it's, yeah, it's 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 really hard to stand out and and say, hey, I believe something, and it, especially when that is counter to the popular yes. idea. And I think a lot of people regret those moments later in life when they they could have stood for yeah. something and they chose not to, especially when the popular opinion then changes to that thing that they agreed yeah, with I mean, in you the really first place. Like
2: a when you try to like, like impose where we are right you now. You were like, I believed it
1: all along. No, I was, I was, I was support Martha from the beginning.
2: Yeah. Right. Sure
1: you were. I just, I just, I was busy. I was doing other stuff.
0: Well, I, I know the culture in the military in, in many cases is one of trying to weed people out. So so a lot of that yeah. difficulties and, and barriers that were created are are institutional irrespective of, of you know, Male or yeah. female, when you get to a certain point and you look around and you say well i'm the, I'm the only you know woman here there's a, or there's a few others and not many it's got to be a little lonely right and and so when you when you move up through an organization like that, I would think it's it's incredibly helpful to have a, a mentor yeah. somebody you can go and say you know hey, how do I get this i'm struggling with this." Yeah. Who do you turn to in a situation like that when you were sort of leading at the tip of the spear there?
2: Well, in, in in my case, there were no examples exactly of women who have, you know, gone before. When I think back again, you know, about my good and bad decision making, right? You know, like this is about talking about where we learn lessons. I remember somebody who was in the first group of women to become pilots uh, after they um open that up again in the late 70s, um, sent me a handwritten note after we were going through our training, you know, talking about, hey, there's a, you know, group of women here that are here for you. And I remember, I think part of it was the mindset. I was in the ninth class of women at the Air Force Academy. And this just mindset of like, you're on your own, you know, this mindset of that I don't I don't know how it happens. A sociologist could have a field day with it. Uh, but I remember like not taking advantage of that because I just felt like I gotta do this myself, which is not a great you know approach to take so as I think back though there were I had a number of of really great male mentors, but there are two other uh two other examples that were so important for me um, One was there were these women who flew planes in world war II. they they're called the wasp women Air force service pilots these amazing women who I learned about at the Academy, but I'd never met one until I was transitioning into the A-10 and three of them walked into a lunch meeting, which was like a fraternity of military pilots that they were not allowed to belong to, by the way, uh, but they were guests. And I was, I was like so inspired by these women and they became such dear friends of mine. Um, they broke barriers so that I could do what I did. They proved at a time of World War II when the country needed them, they, they ferried planes from one place to the other. They towed targets for the gunners to train on the ground, uh, how to shoot down planes. They were instructor pilots. And then when World War II was over, they were like, we're done with you, you're out. And their grit and their um, attitudes and just their experiences and their their heart of gratitude for their service and just working through the obstacles they had was such an inspiration to me. They, just, they were sitting in the front row, When I had my change of command where I took over command of a squadron, the first woman uh, to do that in our history, and they were right there, three of them. And I would not have been able to make it through this without them. There were times where I was like, okay, I think I'm going to move on. I think I'm going to, you know, get out of the military. I'm tired of trying to, you know, uh, uh, encourage a bunch of, you know guys in their locker room yeah. that I belong. I'm trying to trying to give G-rated versions as to what I was saying here. And I was like, ready to hang it up. And I would get, get together with them and they would look at me like, what are you talking about? Like, you can't quit. Like, and they would just encourage me enough to be like, all right, give me perspective, get me back in the fight and keep going. So they were just incredible for me. There was another woman even earlier before I met the WASP who was a female chaplain on the base, on the first base that I was assigned to as a fighter pilot. She had her own challenges and sometimes can be a similar kind of, you know, where people feel like women don't belong doing that. And so she had her own challenges in a different environment, but it was enough the same that she was a great just sounding board for me who was older than me uh, to be able to bounce some things off. Uh, when I was having some real challenges, she was just you know, sending me notes of encouragement every day, like keep, keep it going, keep your perspective. And, and that was absolutely crucial for me at times where that isolation can really, uh, get you to start making bad decisions, right. And not getting, not having good perspective, uh, because you're isolated. So they really helped keep, keep the big picture for me about the opportunities I was having and, and, uh, helped me to persevere to keep in the fight.
0: How did you make sure you were making good decisions or, or you know, did you have a framework you, you walked through? I know decision making is yeah. certainly an important part of the training that it you, you yeah. went through. But how, do you, how would you go through? Because I'm sure there were some extraordinarily challenging times that, that other combat pilots weren't facing.
2: Yeah, I don't, I didn't have like a formal framework, you know, of like, this is how I'm going to make this decision and I'm going to be very analytical about it. Um, I often do that for different things, uh, that, you know, a process we've learned in the military called course of action analysis. Um, I use that a lot, um, in, uh, decisions and encouraging others in decisions where you identify what attributes or what values, um, matter and then you wait whether any of them are of higher uh, value than the others and then you assess each of your courses of action against those values and give them a number and uh you know there's a grading system that i've since learned on that and so you can at least look with some objectivity I've actually helped um, my goddaughter think about like getting into, you know, choosing a college, you know, based on this. And I sure wish like I didn't. Yeah, have anything yeah. like that. OK. And I just went through this with my niece, who's a junior in high school, like where we identified. All right. What attributes do we care about? We care about the academic programs. We care about the cost. We care about geography. We care about, you know, do we care about athletics? Do we care about. Any sort of elements of like culture or community there. So we're we're met, we're literally listing them down, and then we're grading them all in a very objective way. Because sometimes, you know, your what you feel may win out actually doesn't when you line them up against the things that you say you value. It's a really good process. Uh, but I will also say, I mean, I didn't use that a lot in my young decision making. Oh, um, I feel like I had the. I am, I can, I can be very analytical. So I had kind of a, um, the ingredients of that and just trying to make good d- decisions as objective as possible. But, you know, you also need to trust your gut at times too. I think about some other decisions I had. If you were to just look at it objectively, uh even just like I'm gonna go be a fighter pilot if that was a you know decision when I was a cadet yeah. it, it would have come out with the lowest value option, right? It would have had the lowest number. Don't do that that has the least <laughs> likelihood to um succeed so there is this element as i'm you know as I grow in my wisdom and experiences and I feel like I'm in an exponential growth mindset, which is really important for everybody in your decision making process. Have a growth mindset. there's a quote I can't remember. Who it was who said if you're not embarrassed by who you were a year ago you're not grown enough so having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset and so you know i think back like trusting your gut or trusting your uh, what you believe is a calling um sometimes you just need to follow that like don't don't try to overanalyze it don't pull out that legal paper and start you know doing the pluses and minuses or whatever like if you really feel like there's a burning calling inside you or your gut is telling you to do something you know run it by some people for sure but ultimately you gotta look yourself in the mirror and say i need to go like i need i need to do this and this is the right thing to do even if i don't prevail but i need to do it so i mean those are just some, some of the things to think about sometimes i make analytical decisions sometimes i throw the paper out and uh you got to go with your gut and your calling
1: how do you know when it's time to go with your gut? Because we've all had those moments where you're dissecting a decision, you go through this spreadsheet, you make yeah. a pros and cons list, and on paper, option yeah. A is the right choice, but you're just you just can't pick it.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's actually one of the most important um, elements to your decision making. Honestly, I mean, I, I think you know, I know you've got a wide, you know, diverse uh, 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 listener base here, but. I truly believe, like, I'm a person of faith. I do believe, like, you know, part of our kind of spiritual essence is, like, there is a, a nudging and an urging that comes that sometimes we dismiss, you know, that I do believe is spiritual. And it, you're either going to turn it off, turn the noise level up, and ignore it, um, or you're you're going to follow that. And only you can answer that question, right? Only you know that, um, that um, calling that's going on inside you that you're just like, I got to do this. I think the other piece when you make make decisions, whether they're analytical or by your gut or by what you feel you're called to do is hold it with an open hand. Your, your identity is not based on the outcome. Uh, you need to be willing to make mistakes. You need to be willing to fail and learn from the failure. And then you need to be willing to get up and brush your knees off and go, okay, what did I learn from that? And not have that be something that has you have a spirit of regret or, um, uh, beating yourself up or whatever. So it's that mindset of like, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go with the right mindset. I'm gonna go with the, the right you know kind of growth mentality. I'm gonna do the best I can, but I am not defined by this outcome. And no matter what, I'm going to learn. And so the, it may be that the very reason you needed to pick A instead of B is to learn something or to meet somebody. Uh, it may not be the outcome. We're very much outcome focused. And we think if you didn't get the outcome, then you made the wrong decision. And I just disagree. You know, I remember when Yeah, that's so wrong.
1: I agree with your perspective as well. Judging decisions by how they turned out is a recipe for for failure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it was a good decision or bad decision based on the outcome. uh, So I, I have a, I have a question about a big decision you, you made. So you decided to uh, take the Department of Defense to court.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: So that's a that's a, <laughs> that's fairly, a fairly substantial decision. <laughs> decision. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. I need so, to take a sip of water so out of my talk Ukraine. To, talk better. to me about
0: how you how you decided to do that.
2: Yeah. You don't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna sue the Secretary of Defense today, Martha McSally versus Donald Rumsfeld. That's a really great career move. Um, you know what you ta- what you tapped into, Sean, is a a story of an eight year battle that I had with the Pentagon. But it started with I was deployed over to Kuwait. Keep in mind I had just transitioned into fighters, so I was still dealing with the do women belong here? You know, and um, just the near alligators. We're just trying to blend in, do my job, be a good pilot you know, show that I could contribute and fly and shoot just like everybody else. The, the plane doesn't care if you're a boy or a girl. And I'm over in Kuwait and I walk by the duty desk one day and I see kind of this local, it's like a regional newspaper or newsletter. And on the front page is a picture of this. I first, I thought it was like a local Saudi woman. In fact, when I looked at the fine print, it was an American GI, American service woman. It was like, this is the appropriate way to wear the full black Muslim garb and headscarf went off base in Saudi Arabia. And there was just this like immediate gasp, this like conviction inside me of like, that is just wrong. Like, I don't even know why we're doing that, but that is just wrong. And we've all had moments like that. If we think about it, you know, where we just like, we see a problem, we know it's wrong. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And so I really struggled because this didn't apply to me. And Um, I was trying to just keep my head down. And the last thing I want to do is raise some sort of ruckus of, you know, being a woman, right? That was the issue. I was trying to like show like, hey, we're not causing problems. We're just trying to, you know, be patriots and do our job. And so I just struggle. And like, this was a part of like, again, a very kind of prayerful, but not easy uh, process for me uh and i i'll share a little when i called back to a, a mentor of mine and asked him for advice um he asked he told me i just thought, like give me some practical advice i don't know what to do the secretary of defense was coming soon because i was the first woman to deploy there was going to be a bunch of media coverage the first fighter pilot you know in in u.s history to deploy like it was just going to be the secretary of defense was going to talk to me so i was a little bit in this weird category where i was going to get access And the question was, what was I going to do with that platform? You know, was I going to bring up this issue that I thought was wrong? But I better do my homework first, right? Where did this come from? Uh, Whose authority is it? But man, I struggled. So I call back to a mentor and uh, he tells me we're on these tactical army phones. We have to like say over because there's a three second delay, you know, like, I love you, mom, over, and then you wait for, you know, her to talk back. And he says to me, read the book of Esther over. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything over? Right. And again, I'm not trying to turn this into a Sunday school. I'm just telling you, I had a bad attitude about what he offered me. But out of respect, I was like, fine, I'll read the, you know, God, so stupid. I was just looking for some advice. So I read the book of Esther and I'll leave it to your listeners if they want to read it. But Esther was an orphan girl, became the queen. And and, um, anyway, she was put in a position where all of her people were going to be killed and she was the only chance to save them. But if she approached the king, even as the queen, it was punishable by death, If unless he extended his scepter. So I'm not saying I'm Esther. Here's the point, right? Anytime you hear a story, things can resonate with you, whether it's a story or scripture. Her uncle who raised her says to her, can it be that you were put in this position for such a time as this? That's Esther 414. And when I read that verse, it just spoke to me in a very profound way. Can it be that, I've been given this opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy, go to Harvard, to go to pilot training, to be in the right place at the right time when the door opens so I could be in that first group to go, become a fighter pilot, and the first to deploy. So I would have this platform to speak for these young enlisted women who don't have that voice. Could it be, this has nothing to do with me achieving my dreams and goals. This is about me being put in a position to be able to make a difference for others. And I'm that sounds pretty heavy, but that's how it hit me, honestly. It was like, Ah, So I had to start making decisions over the eight years, whether I was going to stand up and continue to try and bring this change about or whether I was going to do what was more comfortable and easy for me. And every time I had to go back to that, can it be that you were put in this position for such a time as this? So I tried to get a change within the Department of Defense. Years later, they ordered me over to Saudi Arabia, threatened to court martial me if I didn't put the burqa on myself. I thought it was my last chance to try and um, bring about change within the system because it was a U.S. military policy only, by the way, um, and when they just failed to do anything about it, I decided to go to the other branches of the government, so what? Um, not an easy decision to be like. I, at that point, I was promoted four years ahead of my peers. I was you know, on track to be a senior leader in the Air Force, and now I'm suing the Secretary of Defense, you know, so... Not easy, but it came from what's the right thing to do. This is part of my decision-making process here, right? What's the right thing to do? What's the next right thing to do? And don't ever walk by a problem. Like these are all parts of kind of how I live my life. If you're ever complaining about something, look yourself in the mirror. What are you going to do about it? And so I just had to keep making the next right decision. And the next right decision after six plus years into this was to get the branches of the government that have oversight of the branch that was failing to address this issue, which I thought was wrong on so many levels. I mean, our women were sitting in the backseat of the car and you know, wearing full Muslim garb and the taxpayers were paying for it. I, I just believed it was unconstitutional. And you know, in the end, um, you know, it took, took eight and a half years, but uh, we were, I was able to prevail. I tell, this, I tell all this in my, in my book, by the way, Dare to Fly, uh, in greater detail. Uh, but ultimately, it goes back to what's the next right thing to do, right? And could it be- And what do
1: you mean by what's the next right thing to do? Uh,
2: what I mean is, so in, that pro- in the eight-year process, I first thought, um, raising it up the chain of command, I thought it was a State Department thing. So I thought I had to go up to the Secretary of Defense and over to the Secretary of State. And that's the path I thought I had to take. And then I realized, I discovered through all my research, it was actually the— US military doing it to itself, to its to our own people. And so I was still trying to like how to figure out, okay, I tried to take a path up the chain of command and it got thwarted. So then it's like what what's the next rate? Like what else can okay. I do? What well, yeah,
1: what, what now? now? Like where else can yeah, I do Don't accept failure on that first. And this
2: gets into again other ingredients I think of good decision making is you got to be creative. If you keep going up the same hill and you keep, you know, keep getting thwarted in your success, you have to look for another way. You have to think about being creative. You have to figure out what allies do I need? How else can I approach this? What other opportunities may come my way? Having a kind of a ma- an agile mindset of also just creativity and curiosity of like, how else can we solve this? And I didn't immediately, if somebody told me I was going to sue the secretary of defense on the the first day when I saw that newsletter, I would have told them that they were crazy. But th- six years later, it was the next right thing to do. Once the you know Department of Defense just refused to change and they just dug in in their bureaucracy. Um, and so I just had to keep asking that, like, what else, what other paths can I take? And presented with other options, what's the next obvious choice? Oh, all along the way, there was one choice to just stop and give up. But that, to me, if you ask what's the next right thing to do... If you think something's wrong, like you don't give up, you just persevere and you look for other ways and other people and other allies and other approaches to be able to be successful.
1: Yeah, it would have been difficult to morally reconcile with a decision to give up. And it's not surprising to me that 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 story had a spiritual motivation because to endure that level of fight, like you've got to have something more than yourself that you're fighting for. And that's not surprising at all to me, I think that you know I was thinking about this earlier when we were um getting set up to have you on. I know that that both you and the and the um u s military both claim that this suit had really nothing to do with you becoming a or like the your pressure didn't have anything to do <laughs> with um you becoming the first female fighter pilot but <laughs> You got to think that it kind of takes someone with that level of dedication and determination to get it done anyway and there's got to be some level of reality to these guys sitting in a room somewhere going geez, like if anyone can do it you know if anyone's going to do this job well it's going to be the it's going to be the chick that just won't give up
2: well, okay so just for crop you know chronological purposes so i actually was a fighter pilot first right so i transitioned into fighters yeah 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 and yeah and so that so here's the here's the thing that's that's kind of funny about it is like they're parading us all around the country like look at these amazing women they're like the best and the brightest and then i was like the you know frankenstein who turned them right so i put them in a position when i took on the burka issue that they could not personally attack me because they had been lauding me. Right. And so they were talking about, you know, what great examples we were. And, you know, we joke that the military really, they say they want change agents and people who challenge things until you're challenging them. And Um, then they don't really want that. Right. Yeah. Um, So yeah, there was an element. I mean, I was very lonely in that journey. I had some allies emerge. Thank God. I had others who were afraid for themselves? Who were quietly cheering for me, which was cowardice in my view. You know, they were like, "You go for it," and I was like, "Well, why aren't you speaking we'll, up? Like, where are you?"
1: We'll be thrilled when yeah, you and win. So, and, and, and,
2: <laughs> and then, of course, when we won, and I was in the, you know, I I was in the gallery of the House of Representatives when 435 members of Congress voted unanimously for my bill to overturn all this stuff um i remember going back to the general yelling at me saying no one cares about this but you no one care what's the matter with you why can't you just let this go and i remember sitting up there saying um there's a lot more people than me who care about this general like i was just saying this to myself it's me and 435 representatives of the american people you jerk and i was just thinking this to myself right and so then (laughs) afterwards of course There were many people who were like, wow, that's like that kind of grit and that kind of courage is what we, they taught us when I entered the Air Force Academy, courage equals moral courage, do the right thing, be willing to risk your career to do the right thing. But when you actually do it, most people like they're threatened by it and they're like, you know, kill the witch, you know, they're just like, whatever, they circle the wagons and (laughs) they want to just take you out. But after I prevailed, it was fascinating to see there was some school of people who were Like, wow, we need that kind of leadership in our military and we need to make sure, you know, she stays and is given more opportunities to lead. And there were still other hangar-oners who just couldn't get over that. I challenged the system and they were just looking for ways to undermine me all the time. But, you know, it is what it is. I don't think about them.
1: Yeah, I wonder where that comes from, that idea that some people have that just, you know, let's just not mess it up. Let's just, you know, it's not that big a deal, and and maybe they'll even concede that it's morally yeah. wrong this thing that yeah. you're trying to change, but ah, but it's still probably not worth doing anything about
2: it. Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the people who were saying that, most, not all, were men who could drive a car off base in their khakis and colored shirt and didn't go get something them. to eat, you know, in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, didn't, a- even...
0: didn't affect them, right?
2: they couldn't even relate to what we were talking about now there were there was certainly a population of women who were defending it that i you know just thought was maddening but um yeah there's an element i think with any within any big bureaucracy of traditionalism and look we have systems and processes for a reason you know we can't be just you know all over the place when we're fighting and winning america's wars like there some of that is is certainly has its value i don't want to throw it all out
1: did they say that it was a, a i mean was there any part of it that was um a safety concern Not it, or so, was it just showing deference to the local again culture? this
2: was all the u.s military doing it to ourselves they women used to be after desert storm uh wearing their uniform off base and during my whole very public um when it became public, my, my, uh, you know, challenging of this, the uh, Gerald McCaffrey, I don't know if you remember Gerald McCaffrey, but he but he was in, you're too young, there, say but anyway, he was in charge of the ground forces in desert storm, he reached out to me and he supported me in my lawsuit. He was like, this is a leadership issue. And um, this is just wrong. Like we need to, you know, you, you need to be respectful to local cultures. Don't get me wrong, right? Don't shake with your left hand. Don't yeah. show the bottom of your foot. That's not the same as let's take our women and treat them with these seventh century norms where they're property. And like, if not only are we okay with our host nation doing that, but we're, we're imposing it on our own people. And so the whole thing was just a little bit of, you know, an attempt of cultural sensitivity by Americans to Americans. Um, and the yeah. state department wasn't doing it. The women at the embassy, my dog just sneezed over here if you heard that noise. Um, the women at the embassy were not doing it. They were supporting me, uh, during this whole process. Like, uh, it was ridiculous, but it takes on a life of its own in a bureaucracy where it gets more and more ridiculous over time. And then everybody defends it and thinks it's above their pay grade. When I first confronted the two-star general, who was the actual legal authority to change it, he said, there's nothing I can do about it. It's above my pay grade. And I was like, no, it's actually your policy. Uh, he just didn't know it because you know, it was bureaucracy
1: and his default was to say i can't yes. do anything yes
2: without yeah, knowing then given the that max, see that's so he refused telling to change it because from my view i'm not I, i'm not in his heart or his head he didn't want to make any waves you know he gets to do his one year didn't want to change anything not on his watch um get his next star uh you know that kind of career wait
0: so so even even once that was pointed out that that was actually his decision, he decided he not to make the decision. To change
2: it. And I offered, Hey, how about we just change it when they're traveling from one military base to the other or to the airport or to a meeting with Saudi military officials? Why would I have to put a burqa on over my uniform? And like, we should eventually change it for going shopping and eating, but let's work with the embassy on that. Refused to change it. It was just dig in, attack me. I mean, it was just a crazy case study in, um, Failure of leadership, honestly. So, and then once I once it was public, then they start. You know, once I was sort of challenging them publicly, then they hide behind force protection, right? They, oh, it's dangerous. You know, if you're out there as a woman in Saudi Arabia and you're not clothed in the garb, and I would be like, okay, let me get this straight. Let's let's pull the let's pull the string on this. The same the same uh, regulation that says I am required to wear this Muslim garb says that the men are forbidden from wearing any local customary garb, and
1: wait a, wait a second, wait a second. Wait and, oh, this
2: gets and better, better. There was no kidding a policy like on the wall when I when I finally deployed there. There's no kidding a policy on the wall with a picture of a woman in an abaya is an abaya burka. It's you know it's the same t- terminology, yeah. just her face is not covered, and it, no kidding said. You have to always have a male escort. And if you are stopped, you are to lie and claim your fellow service woman as your wife to comply with local Sharia law, Muslim law. And I was like, whoa, our top core value in the Air Force is integrity first. And you literally have a policy on the wall saying <laughs> so lie. And by the way, this like, is super superpower. I'm not trying to be the ugly American here, but like we're here to protect our interests and theirs. And again, State Department's not doing it. Saudis weren't asking for it. This whole thing just got so distorted and so I was like, okay, let, let's get this straight. So I'm in a suburban convoy with dark tinted windows, traveling from base A to base B in the middle of the night. That's what that's how they first made me wear it. And you know, picture this. There's a jihadist on the side of the road with an RPG, and he's he's about to take out the American convoy. But as he looks through his sights, he sees. Wait, there's a woman in the back seat of the car wearing an abaya. They must not be Americans. Like seriously, like give me a break. It's a joke, right? <laughs> they must be
0: the good ones. Right.
2: Or, <laughs> or if I succeed in blending in to look like a local Saudi woman, and I have an American GI male escort with me, like you know what? What kind of punishment does that bring about? The whole thing was ridiculous. I'm like, look, I'm a. I'm a warrior. If it's that dangerous for me to go off base, give me a gun. You know, don't give me a burka was my mindset, right? Like this is, this is, the whole thing was insane. It was like a classic. Yeah. Ridiculous.
1: I mean, I would imagine that there's, there, there is probably some level of, hey, don't be a dummy. Don't walk through yes. town in like a Superman t-shirt and cargo shorts and flip flops. Yes you know, don't stand out, but, but going that to that yes. level of extreme, I just well, don't, I can't thing, get again, it.
2: People got to read dare to fly for them to get the whole story, but you you wouldn't believe where it started. You'll, I'll have to leave it as a punchline. They'll have to, like, it's again, a classic case of somebody, basically we think not wanting to enforce a dress code. It was just the east, easiest path to take. And it just took on a life of its own and got more and more ridiculous over time. Like it's, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say, That's hey, so, yeah. loose fitting, long sleeve, long pants, long dress, conservative clothing. I'm not saying, you know, wear, you know, bikini downtown or, you know, there were certain limitations for both men and yeah. women. Um, but the embassy pretty much were the experts on this and we should follow them. And And you know what? If it's if it's not suitable for the troops to go downtown, then let's let's have nobody go downtown like the way they ended up doing it was basically the men you know the men would have free um coming and going for shopping and eating and i was a prisoner on my base in saudi arabia because i was refusing to wear a burqa my own choice you know if if it was in my free time yeah
1: i i think that there's some level of it you know being respectful to the local culture i remember when sean and i went to morocco um Oh, this was 2009 or so a while back yeah. um, before we went, Sean's like, okay, well, make sure you're only packing pants. Nice. Um, no, like graphic t-shirts nice. or anything. Um, and I was like, oh, why? He goes, well, it's a Muslim country. They men don't do that. And we get there and oh man, that the tourists that didn't oh, yeah. do that, they just Stood looked out. so. They looked, Ugh. they looked yeah. rude. You know, and yeah. that's not something that yes. I would I would never look at a man wearing shorts in Fort Worth, Texas, and think what a rude fella. Yeah. But there in Marrakesh, I'm like, oh, this guy. No, I totally get jerk. it.
2: But to take you know, take it again to the next level. The culture we're talking about is one where women are a not very Western. Yeah. Like women yeah. are essentially property, and like that's their their decision on how they are treating women. We should not be imposing that on our own people is the bottom line. Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. Like, There's a big divide yeah. between modesty and, yeah. um, you know, you can't even show your nose and mouth in public.
2: Yeah. Or, you know, or, it's you just know, a, a, I'm it's not a, a Muslim. I'm not putting, you know, putting on Muslim garb that the taxpayer had to pay for. Um, you know, I'm not asking anybody to wear a cross or, you know, ha- have people wear a yarmulke. That's not their faith. Like this is a, this is an element of like, it, it's, it was just, it was wrong on so many levels. It was the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: oh, yeah. the, the thing that gets me is 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 that you're you're forcing some people to wear certain yeah garb of the local garb, yeah. and then prohibiting, prohibiting others from doing the exact same thing. Yes, and that that's that the seems best part. to, yes. to run yeah. the
2: insanity of it <laughs> all. That seem, yes, that,
0: that does seem insane. So I have a uh, I have a question for you on kind of a different topic because i know we're bumping up against uh time what's the next mountain you're going to climb not uh figuratively literally what's what are you doing oh next?
2: literally well um everest base camp is uh with Shiley, our, our good friend uh yeah is, yeah, is yeah. List, yeah. Uh, for sure i just did a, a crazy 100 mile five day four night solo trek on the arizona trail it wasn't a mountain but it was uh, stretching myself in a way that I have never been stretched before. I don't even like go camping. Right. So like this was a huge stretch for me to buy myself with everything I needed on my back for five days, go do this. Uh, I joke that if I, you know, wanted to carry a heavy pack on my back and sleep on the ground, I would have joined the army, not the air force. So I was really pushing myself, not just physically, but just into a place of kind of discomfort uh, that I haven't, uh, experienced in a while. As you know, Sean, I have kind of extreme hobbies of paragliding and other things. Um, and so we also did rim to rim of the Grand Canyon last year. So we're looking at a rim to rim to rim. Um, and then I'm looking oh, at, wow. you know, I don't know.
1: Okay, explain that. What, so what does that the mean? South
2: rim down to the Colorado River to the North rim, which is uh, something like 24 miles, I think with, you know, pretty significant elevation change. And then yeah. um, turn around and, and, and go back. <laughs>
0: so oh, so I, from the people I've, I've yeah. talked to who've done that, the challenging part is that it's almost the reverse well, of, of climbing a mountain, or it is a reverse of climbing a mountain is that you're going down first, you know, which is typically the less stressful part. And then you have to finish it with the harder part yes, of coming yes. back up when it's scorching yes, hot. Yes. We just and, did you know. this, the
2: rim to rim. We had a bunch of new people with us. Um, well, we, so we just did a South rim down one trail, to the Colorado river and up a different trail a few weeks ago and a bunch of first timers were with us. And it was 28 degrees at the start, you know, as the sun was coming up with some howling winds and it was like 95 at the bottom. And then you're coming up exposed in the heat up a 5,000 foot climb the second half of the hike. Right. So there, I've, I've done that enough now that I like, I know what the challenges are physically and mentally, but we had a, a number of new people who are not big hikers, but this was a lifelong, you know, goal for them that it was, it was super challenging. We got everybody out. It took a, it took a, a bit of time and a bunch of help from some wingmen, but we got everybody out safely. So I don't know, what are your well, you know, ideas, you're, Sean? You're, Where else should I go? Machu Picchu?
0: I, I like that one. My, uh, my daughter, yeah, Machu Picchu is one, so Sanger and I were in Machu Picchu uh, a few years back and it was just wonderful. I mean, it's just amazing uh how that place was still intact that's My, one of uh, those
1: you can like make it as hard as you want you know yeah, you can get you, a, can. you can get a train ride and then a bus will take you there or you can hike for two weeks to get there
2: yeah I mean, yeah go through the uh like, yeah, yeah the Inca. and then what about the, yeah, the sunrise gate uh, what's the way of Saint james uh I mean, it's not really, yeah it's the camino de santiago yeah.
0: yeah so that that is less of a you know outdoor wilderness hike and there's a lot of urban hiking uh, cause you're, you're going town to town. Uh, so it's, it's a cultural and, and, you know, kind of a spiritual experience as much as Have anything else. Have you done else, the whole thing? But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I did it uh, twice. I, I enjoyed it so much. I, it was really strange when I finished and we finished in Santiago and, uh, you know, you you, you hike for a month to get wow. there, you know, so it's about 500 miles and you get to this beautiful cathedral in, uh, in Santiago and there's a whole process. You you sort of go through mass, and and you uh, you can place your hand in this this uh, column that thousands of pilgrims have done before, and it kind of wore okay. it's worn in you know like a yeah. handprint there. And and you go through this, and you have no idea what they're saying because it's either Latin or yeah. Spanish. But the uh, but th- the first thing I wanted to do after arriving there was to keep hiking. Was to hike yeah. again, it because it was so transformative in terms of how I thought about things, in terms of my relationship with myself and with God, and and just how I interacted with other people It really changed my perspective on on things in a different way from wilderness hiking, like on the Pacific Crest Trail or the Arizona Trail, which I, I hiked it, uh, last year. Not, not Wait, we'll you think. did the
2: whole Arizona Trail, uh, did you say? Oh. No,
0: no, no, no. I, <laughs> I don't want to claim okay. that I did that. I hiked a section okay, yeah, of you it. Uh, and it is uh, it is so different. Yeah. I mean, there are just things that will uh, poke you and sting you all over the place. Uh, yes,
2: <laughs> well also just mentally. i so I've been trying, uh, uh, not trying, but I committed to doing the entire Arizona trail in day hikes, and I'm, you know, making my way through it, and I just hit a point yeah. where, you know, I, I did all the easy ones as far as accessibility yeah. goes, logistics wise. So I was like, you know, I need to start thinking about going overnight and I need to push myself out of my comfort zone here you could sort of wing one night but i was like no i'm going 100 miles five days yeah. four nights um man that was I fascinating i think
0: hydration yeah hydration would seem to be the the biggest challenge yeah that, there's you know
2: great information along the way from other hikers you had a filtrate i brought a filtration mm-hmm. system just to make sure you knew of how course, long you yeah. were between water stops and the, the worst i had was six liters on my back going up one uh uh uphill stretch um it was probably a little more than i needed but i needed to spend the night and then didn't get to water the next day and i was just a little you know again out of my comfort zone and i thought hey what's gonna kill you you know it's like the lack of water not the lack of food (laughs) it's lack of water yeah
0: singer singer and i did a good section of the pacific crest trail and we have a picture of of me you know because we had a water filtration we had to have water filters. And so, Sager took a picture of me early. on like, "Day, this is day one." I think, and I'm filtering. I said, "Take a picture of me filtering some water." And so, I'm filtering this water, and I, I sent it to somebody uh, who kind of knew what they were doing, and they said, "You know, you're doing that. You're doing that backwards." Right? I mean, oh, I had it completely <laughs> stupid, you know. And so,
1: <laughs> you're like instantly ruined your filter.
0: Oh, mild ten. Uh, it was. Bad. Yeah. Oh I learned my gosh. I learned. You know, that's how you learn.
2: Yes, you do. <laughs> Luckily I didn't make any mistakes like that. And I had some people who've done the Arizona Trail coaching me and I borrowed some gear and uh so I'm about three hundred and forty miles done now and I've got about four hundred and forty oh, nice. to go. So anyway, I'm I'm chugging away.
0: Great. Well, we are going to put a link to the, uh, Dare to Fly on the, uh, the website in the show awesome, notes. Uh, any other information you want on there as we uh, close yeah, up? Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah, my website's uh, McSally.com If people want to you know, check, check it out, I'm doing speaking engagements and different things. And I'm basically at Martha McSally on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I'm not posting regularly, but that's where I am. And, uh, I, you know, when I do interesting things or feel like I have something to say, I, uh, I share them. So
0: that's great. Well, maybe we could talk again and we'll share uh, paragliding oh, stories, yeah. success and failures on, on that. Uh, next time we Absolutely. talk.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to that. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: My takeaway from our discussion with Martha McSally is really, there were several, there was so much content in there. One was when you're looking at making decisions is, is sort of, she said, sort of do the right thing, but then do the next right thing uh, and, and don't walk by a problem. So I, I thought that was really instructive in, in terms of looking at the perseverance and pushing through until you get that right result. And there are a lot of decisions along the way to get there.
1: My takeaway is Martha said when you see something wrong it's up to you to say what are you going to do about it and I think that a lot of times we confuse complaining with a decision um, and, and and sure it's a decision to complain but to to really take action is what's required morally if we think that there's a wrong that needs to be righted thanks for listening to this episode of decidedly I hope you learned something I know I did If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at DecidedlyPodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at DecidedlyPodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly.